Hi, this is presenter Christodinopoli, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Indigenuity, a weekly radio show hosting conversations with Indigenous knowledge holders showcasing all forms of Indigenous ingenuity. Indigenuity is broadcast live on Triple R each Sunday afternoon. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website or Twitter at IndigenuityAU. So we'd like to start off uh, in true Indigenuity fashion by acknowledging that we are broadcasting out from the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. And so we'd like to acknowledge their continued connection to these beautiful sky country, waterways and land um, and to pay our respect to Elders past and present. And uh, this is also your reminder as well to... uh, be acknowledging the country that you're travelling on throughout your work week, reminding yourself of the specificity of the place in which you are on. So now we're coming to our interview for today's show, and we're going to be speaking with Marie Clark. Marie is a Yorta Yorta, Wamba Wamba, Moti Moti and Boomerang woman from North West Victoria and a multidisciplinary visual artist. Um, so we're going to be chatting to uh, Marie about her a number of projects that she's been working on recently, uh, in particular, a very exciting exhibition called Between Waves, which is now showing at ACCA, which is the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art. Marie, welcome to Indigenuity. Thank you. Good to be here. <laughs> it's good to see you. Um, so I wanted to start off by saying, because you're a multidisciplinary artist, incredible uh, range of talent across a spectrum of different mediums. And so I was wondering if you could describe for our listeners what is your art practice? I think my art practice is trying different ways to tell stories through art. And that could be a lenticular print, photographic hologram, sculptures, whatever's happening. Yeah, and I'll make it. And when did this sort of start for you through, uh, I guess, communicating um, or being a storyteller through an artistic medium? Oh, I think probably late 80s, um, started off as a jewellery maker, then came to Melbourne to paint the first green and gold tram in 1988. And then it sort of kicked off from there really to, you know, supersized billboards to, you know, big mosaics and sculptural pieces. Yeah. Yeah. And so what are some of the projects, I guess, that you're working on recently? I know you've got you've, you've had your hands in a, in a mm. lot of pies. I don't know if that's like the right sort yeah. of application of that saying. Um, lots of fingers in lots, lots of, of pies. <laughs> yes. yeah. um, but could you tell us about some of these pies? <laughs> okay, so one pie would be Metro Tunnel. Yep. So I'm the legacy line-wide artist for the five new train stations being built in Melbourne. Wow. Um, so my artwork will be from platform level. And then the new Munro Library that's being built opposite Queen Victoria Market, where I've designed the children's carpet, um, 100 square metres of um, passageway glass, so the children, it will be like them walking through a beautiful forest to go into their library. And the carpet is representative of the seven seasons of the Kulin Nation. So all the animals and plants are colour-coded so the kids will be able to learn about the seven seasons. Um, We cast my husband's huge Kulaman in cast iron, which will be for the terrace. Um, Alan is fabricating the six-metre eel trap, which will be part of the kids' play area. Um, And beautiful carpet 
in the, the adult library section, which will have the five maps of the Kulin Nation yeah. on top of this beautiful, like, watercolour painting Incredible. on the floor. Yeah. And so I guess with these, because it, it seems like for decades you've been working on major projects. Yeah. So <laughs> what's the sort of, I guess, like thought process when um, it's sort of, uh, I guess, approaching a project like the ones you've described? Mm. Because we have different sort of environments and also mm. different sort of, you're sort of constricted to different, like, not just media, but like, for example, yeah. like a billboard versus creating a sort of interactive space within a library. What is that sort of, how does that thought process sort of start in that design? Well, I think with with the library, for instance, that was basically like walking into a blank canvas and you've just got these concrete walls and pillars and you basically just dream what might look good in that space. And because we're talking about children and there'll be a childcare centre and a children's library, it's like how can you create artworks that could be interactive for them? And so that's where it... I thought maybe something around the seven seasons so yeah. that it becomes educational for the kids. Um, and I think for the adult library carpet, I thought because they, they had these sort of carpet squares that looked, you know, fairly boring, and I said, we're spending all this time and energy in the children's library area. Um, can I design the, the adult library carpet too? So Hilary Jackman, who's on my team created this most beautiful watercolour painting and I thought the maps of country over top would look great. So depending on your mood, you might sort of go to a different area of the library. Incredible. Oh, well, I I can't wait to see that when it uh, comes to fruition. It sounds like an incredible space. Yeah, well, we want to invite our our friends who have small children so we can do a little bit of a, a sort of, yeah, get them to... or just see their faces when they walk through... And they'll catch glimpses of themselves walking down the passageway, which will be like a forest. And behind the forest is mirror. Yeah. So they'll yeah see themselves wandering into the library. Should be beautiful. It sounds incredible. Yeah. I I can't wait. My um, it's hard to talk through like the grin on my face of like, relax <laughs> the face muscles uh, at yeah. that description. Um, I wanted then to ask a bit about. So you've attended two residencies in the USA, um, including the Museum of Glass in Tacoma, mm. as well as Philchuk. Pilchuck Glass School. Pilchuck Glass School. Could you tell Mm. us a bit about what those experiences were? Like, why did you attend and what were the things you were learning through that experience? Well, initially I was invited to Pilchuck for two weeks to do this glass artist residency. So because I've been doing work with Canberra Glassworks over the last few years and they've fabricated my, my two beautiful eel traps that are now part of the NGV collection, um... Amy did an introduction and they invited me to do a two-week artist residency and then Tacoma, the Museum of Glass in Tacoma, heard about it and invited me there to do a one-week artist residency. And basically they give you gaffers who will blow your glass so you just basically have to dream up what you you would like made in glass and they'll make it for you. Yeah. Yeah, so... and is there anything that you feel um, like working in a glass medium offers that you don't you don't get out of working, for example, on, um, I guess, like a canvas or a billboard, something that's sort of like a 2D space? Yeah, well, I've, you know, I haven't painted myself for, for years. And now I tend to, to dream up these huge projects where I have to then work with a team that fabricate my work. And that took a little bit of getting used to, mm. but... 
you know, it's it's an incredible space to work in. And working with glass just to, to see how they sort of work off each other, just bounce off each other, and they're just so in tune that, yeah, what they make is fantastic. Yeah. yeah. And so I guess are you inspired to continue working with glass as a medium? Absolutely. Well, in the three weeks I was um, in the US, I based, they basically fabricated a whole body of work for me, so 30 pieces, and I'm now trying to get funding to make a three to four metre marini glass canoe, um, which would sit alongside this new work that I've made. Incredible. I love... So that will be for a solo show. So, you know, I'm one of those people that don't show the process until it's complete and it's out there and then... And then I'll show people well, inc- what I've been doing. Incredible. Um, yeah. It, yeah, I really love, uh, I guess, glass as a medium. Some beautiful works really come from it. So what you're describing with the library as well mm. as your future sort of plans, mm. um, I, it just sounds absolutely gorgeous. <laughs> yeah, that's fun. So I wanted to turn our attentions to um, a pretty exciting exhibition that's now at the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art, ACCA, um, which is called Between Waves. Uh, so this is uh, an exhibition where one of your pieces is featured. And so mm-hmm. I was wondering if you could give a bit of an introduction to the Between Waves exhibition for our listeners at home. Um, so my part in in the exhibition Between Waves, it, and because I've been working with River Reads for like a lot of years now, and basically we go and collect and harvest and I tend to make like 50 metre river reed necklaces or I've had Canberra Glassworks fabricate glass river reeds for me and glass seed pods. And it's like, how do I continue working with the the river reeds? And this time I really wanted to see the river reed under a microscope. So between um, Jess and I, we found the histology department at Melbourne University and I'd never heard that word before, (laughs) didn't know what it meant but basically it's looking at um, cell samples under the microscope and um, yeah, basically went in, Jess and I went down to the Maribyrnong, pulled a whole clump of river reeds out with the root intact and they sliced it to two hundredth of a millimetre and put them through different dye baths. Wow. And I could manipulate the colour through the... Um, oh, this other little thing on the, the um, microscope. And, yeah, what you see in between waves is basically the microscopic river reeds, which yeah. are beautiful. And what was that experience for you, I guess, having worked with river reeds for so long mm. and then to then be seeing them on this literal cellular level... Yeah. What was that experience? Oh, that was incredible. So to to be working in a lab with scientists and here I am an artist coming into their space and they don't have that many artists go in there, but I see the river reeds differently to how they see the river reeds, you know, especially, yeah, there's all these other technical names that I can't remember, but yeah, to me it was art. Yeah. And they look like landscapes or they look like central desert paintings or yeah, a whole range of other things. And so how do these uh I guess like these microscopic images tie into your artwork that is showing at Between Waves, which is called uh Now You Now You See Me Seeing the Invisible. Yeah, so that is basically looking at the river reeds. So you 
you can see a river reed, but you don't see what's inside. So it's delving down deep into um, that microscopic invisible river reed, <laughs> which is basically invisible to the naked eye um, unless you see it. And um, the people, or Laura, had cut the river reeds sort of in a circle, but she also cut them long ways. So, yeah. Different ways once, of looking Once you at it. see it, yeah, it's... Um, You'll get what I'm talking about. Yeah, incredible. Yeah. And um, very excitingly, your artwork, Now You See Me Seeing the Invisible, number one, has yeah. been uh, extended into a Now You See Me Seeing the Invisible, number two, um, mm. out in Fed Square for the next few days until July 19th. Our listeners still have three days to arrive between 5 and 7 p.m. to mm. see your artwork shown in that um, external outside environment. Yeah. I was wondering what was, I guess, were there any considerations that needed to be made about adapting that piece from, in, I guess, internal to the gallery out into this sort of outdoor space? No, well, um, a filmmaker friend who also worked on another project that just launched the other night at 101 Collins Street, Flinders Lane entrance, um, Dorian, he had compiled all of my microscopic images for... Um, the Fed Square big screen, mm. so it sort of wraps around. And again, it's yeah, the microscopic images. And I think it will have a rest while the women's soccer's on, and then it will come back on, I think, until September. Oh, excellent. I'm glad yeah. so it's coming back also. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, brilliant. Uh, and so that also then, um, before I sort of moved away from that sort of focus, I'm very mm. curious, why is it that you find yourself drawn to working with River Reed continuously sort of over your career? Well, river reeds traditionally were given to, or necklaces, were given to people passing through country as a sign of safe passage and friendship. Mm. So I just sort of loved that idea. And so for this particular exhibition, Between Waves, I also had my husband and two of his friends um, make 300 bags of river reeds with thread that we'd given out on the opening night of Between Waves, so everybody had gone home with, yeah, a wow. little package to make their own um, river reed necklace. Oh, that's very generous yeah. and yeah. very very yeah. meaningful. Yeah. No, it was good fun. Good fun to do. And so then, uh, for I guess for our listeners, we actually do have a very exciting event coming up, an artist talk next weekend, oh, yeah. um, in which you'll be participating with curator Jessica Clark, as well as as, as a fellow contributing artist, Hayley Miller-Baker. Mm. Uh, what could we expect from that little yarn next weekend? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, I think rock up, turn up. Yeah, rock up, turn up, find out. Ask questions, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, if you want to find out more about this excellent exhibition Between Waves as well as the works of Marie Clark and the other contributing artists, in particular, as I've just said, uh, Hayley Miller-Baker and Jessica Clark, uh, next weekend um, they will be having a chat Sunday, uh, Saturday 22nd of July at 3pm at ACCA, um, Main Theatre. It's free. Book in. Find out more about their beautiful work. But on that note, Marie, I want to thank you so much for your time today for coming in to speak with us. No worries. Thank you. Thanks for the invite. Excellent. So we've just been chatting with uh, Yorta Yorta, Wamba Wamba, Muti Muti and Boomerang multidisciplinary artist Marie Clark. Uh, so if you want to check out her beautiful work that's showing at Between Waves Exhibition, you can go to ACCA, the Australian Contem Centre for Contemporary Art, go to their website. There is an artist talk next weekend. It's free. Uh, so I encourage you all to, to check it out because it's just incredible. So now we're to the point of the show where things get a little chaotic because I have <laughs> free reign to chat to you about the beautiful things up in 
up and, up and out of space, things that surround us in the universe. And today I wanted to have a little bit of a chat about stars. And at the heart of it, the reason why is because I want to tell you a beautiful Yolnu story, um, which describes a very exciting historical event that happened in the beautiful skies above in the banks of the Sky River, which we know as the Milky Way. Um, but to do so, I thought it would also be a great time to give you, I guess, some random uh, insight into the way that we actually think of stars. So I wanted to start off with some background, just talking about the fact that stars come in different sizes and temperatures. So our sun is sort of considered a bit like a Goldilocks, a Goldilocks star. It's perfect. It's not too hot, not too cold, just right, beautiful yellow star. And it's the only star, the only type of star in the entire universe where we know, hey, life actually evolves around it. So for us, it seems to be a very sort of cushy existence. But stars come in different sizes and different temperatures, and this actually impacts how long they live and also, very excitingly, the way the stars die. Because they can, some of the stars can put on quite a show depending on how they live their lives and how they end them. So for some sort of background, I guess, for people who are unaware, because we live on planet Earth, beautiful rocky planet, lovely setup, very cushy, uh, but we also have these things called gas giants, which are also planets. And so when you look at these things, sort of this large gaseous mass, huge um, as a planet versus a tiny little rocky planet, it seems like the way that we can differ between the two is pretty straightforward. It's okay, there are planets and they come in different types. But did you know that the line between what makes a gas giant planet and what actually makes a star is quite blurry? It's actually not super clear cut. And some exciting things happen in that sort of boundary between what is still a gas giant and what is now a star that is fusing different uh, atoms. Like, for example, the most common being fusing of hydrogen into helium. So Jupiter is a gas giant in our solar system, but it is it's very small. You know, it's some people like to consider it a failed star, but it's not. It's 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 essentially just way too tiny. But if we had, say, 80 Jupiters and squished them together, we would start to have such intense pressure within that planet, in the very core of that gas giant, where fusion could actually happen, which is the process at which stars burn. It's the process which enables them to actually live for millions to billions of years. So this sort of borderline between what is a gas giant and what is a successful star, we find this little category of things called brown dwarfs. And so essentially these are failed stars and Jupiter's way too small to be one, but these are essentially stars which are so, they're so large, they've got so much mass that sometimes things internally get so hot and so high in pressure that they can start to fuse what they're made of. So they're made of hydrogen, they fuse it all together and create helium. And this is how we start to get those elements that we are used to in the world. They are made within stars. Our stars are factories. But most stars are just made of hydrogen. And yet we end up with all these beautiful things, things that have made us, you know, different types of metals, carbon, water, etc., like everything that comes together. Um, so this sort of needs to be born out of stars. So our youngest or our smallest stars we get when they're successful, they're large enough and they can keep this fusion going permanently is something called a red dwarf. And these are stars that are so tiny and so dim. They are red in color because they are actually the coldest type of star. 
Star color is similar to a Bunsen burner, if you're familiar with that idea, how the the fire is usually yellow when it's sort of in its warm flame, and when it's at its very, very hot flame, that's when we get the beautiful blues. And so our stars are on a similar spectrum. Our red stars are so small and so faint, and even given the term dwarf, that they actually live for trillions of years. Which is very interesting fun fact. Red stars are the only stars in the entire universe that live longer than the universe itself. And we have never, ever, ever seen a red star die. If they live for trillions of years, the universe is only 14.5 billion. Red stars live forever. Our star, like the sun, on the other hand, has a bit of a shorter timescale. And so it's very interesting to me here because stars are essentially what they're made up of is their own fuel. So they burn through their own body mass to keep themselves alight. And you would think that the larger a star is, the more fuel it has, so the longer it's going to burn for. In actuality, the bigger a star is, the higher the temperatures, the higher the pressure, the rate of their uh, reactions, the rate of burning is so much faster that the bigger a star is, the shorter its lifespan by a crazy amount. So a tiny little red star lives for trillions of years, but the big, very hot, massive, massive stars, which are blue in colour, actually might only live a few hundred thousand or a couple of million So it's an inverse relationship that I wasn't expecting and I find really fascinating. And so these are all our factories which make different things. So a yellow star like our sun, the little Goldilocks star, what it does is it fuses hydrogen into helium and then it goes up to the way of fusing a couple more elements till we get to carbon. Then it sort of grows into a red dwarf when it dies. Sorry, a red giant. So it expands. So the sun will move from its current orbit and it will grow in size until it actually consumes the orbit of the Earth. So that's a massive escalation in its size. But that's sort of the extent of its death. It gets big, then it sort of fizzles out into a white dwarf and it fades off into obscurity. Nothing too dramatic. But those big, big stars, those massive blue ones, those massive white ones, the ones that have been fusing way beyond carbon, but they've started trying to fuse different things into creation to the point where they get up to iron, which is a metal. And when you're trying to fuse iron and iron together trying to create iron, you end up with a process that requires way more energy than it gives out. And so this is where stars reach their fatal, that fatal sort of point in their life where they're sort of past retirement and things are getting a little bit dicey. Because for a star that is trying to fuse something that takes more energy than it actually gives out, it is reaching the end and it's going to go into something that's called a supernova. And this is the big fiery death of very large stars. It's very exciting. You could see them with the naked eye if they're close enough. You can see them during the day. It'll be as bright as the moon. Stick around for a few weeks or a few months. And this is the focus of today's story. So it's a Yolnu tradition. It's quite sad. Uh, very beautiful story, though, um, which covers the adventures of two young brothers who go out one day in their canoe. And so it's said that these brothers... In their excitement of the day, you know, going fishing, which is a process or a pastime that they usually do, they unfortunately don't notice that a very vicious storm is actually forming overhead of them. And so when they finally realise that they are in the midst of some very turbulent weather, they try and get back to land, but unfortunately the storm catches them and they are capsized and thrown into the water. The older brother, being much more experienced and strong, He's able to get his younger brother brother back into the canoe, but unfortunately is unable to do so for himself. And so the older brother is lost on this day. When the younger brother returns to his community, he explains his brother's sacrifice and his loss to his elders, and they perform a ceremony to 
I guess, commemorate the brother's life, the sacrifice he had given in giving his life for his brother, um, and to essentially uh, guide him in the next steps in his journey up into the Sky River, which is the Milky Way above. It's said that during the ceremony, they see an eruption of a bright star into the sky, in the banks of the Sky River, very specifically near two stars called Shala and Lasath, and we find them in the constellation of Scorpius. And so the community knows in seeing this beautiful, big, bright star burst into existence in the sky, they know this to be the spirit of the older brother. And so the younger brother, his wish is that one day he'll be able to join his brother in that camp up in the banks of the Sky River. And when this big, big star fades away with time, it leaves behind those two little stars, Shala and Lasath. And so what's very interesting especially as an astronomer, is looking at this beautiful story and seeing what seems to be describing a supernova occurrence. So this is how it would look for us if a big star, a big massive old star, died in our galaxy. We would see this beautiful bright star essentially just seem to blink into existence. And it would stick around for a while, maybe a few months. We'd be able to see it during the daytime. It would be just as bright as the moon. And then it would slowly fade with time. And these are super rare events, and yet we have oral traditions which describe them. I haven't seen one in living memory. I hope to see them at some point. Um, But these are quite rare, especially for it to be visible from Earth with the naked eye. And so what's really interesting is that there are other ancient astronomers who have seen this same occurrence, who have described the emergence of this super bright star in the banks of the Sky River, right near these stars of Shala and Lasath. And what's fascinating is these ancient astronomers, ancient Chinese astronomers, have a written record. And so we can see whether this description of what seems to be the same event in a very specific small part of the sky, whether these two descriptions could be of the same occurrence. It's super rare, these events. So for me, um, the research I'm completely swayed by. I I see, just... It would be a marvellous coincidence if we had two supernovas in the same spot in the galaxy over these timescales. But um, what's cool about this ancient Chinese record is that we can get the date for when this Yolnu tradition probably um, was made. And this is actually dated to the year 393. So this is an event that appears to have occurred over 2000 or around 2000 years ago, which is described in the traditions of the Yolnu people. And so on this sort of note about supernova, because they are super rare... And usually hard to sort of um, sort of forecast. But what's very exciting is we actually have another very important star in the sky, which we've spoken about on Indigenuity quite a few times, which is the star Betelgeuse or Betelgeuse. And what's very, very exciting is in recent weeks, there has been a paper that has emerged in the field of astrophysics describing that Betelgeuse is set to be our next galactic supernova. It is the next star in our own Milky Way, something that's rather, you know, these stars are rather close to us. Not scary close, fun close. They are close enough that when this star explodes, Betelgeuse explodes in the next tens of years, so it's down to the point of decades in our lifetime. This would be something that we would see bright as anything in the night sky. It would forever change a constellation, the constellation of Orion that so many communities recognise, cultures right around the world recognise, because Orion would be losing his right shoulder, which is sort of identifying him as a, as a person to begin with. Um, so this is very exciting. I'm very excited sort of about this news. I love Betelgeuse, uh, but at the same time, I'm very excited to see Betelgeuse die at some point. 
On this note, we're going to sign off for today. Uh, so we're very lucky to have the wonderful Marie Clark, Yorta Yorta, Wamba Wamba, Muti Muti and Boomerang multidisciplinary artist coming into the studio to tell us about some of her recent projects and a very exciting exhibition called Between Waves, which you can go see at the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art. And they actually have an artist talk free to the public next weekend, Saturday 22nd at 3pm. You can hear from Marie Clark, Hayley Miller-Baker, as well as the curator, Jessica Clark. Um, So keep an eye out for those beautiful works. We heard a lot about the preparation that goes into them uh, on today's show. And then we finished up with just a little yarn about exploding stars. Um, So keep that in mind too with Indigenuity that we like to explore um, some of the exciting things that are happening out in outer space and the rest of the universe uh, in on our beautiful Sundays, something uh, to not cause any type of um, existential crises, I guess, thinking about these long time scales of stars that live longer than the universe itself. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Indigenuity, a weekly radio show hosting conversations with Indigenous knowledge holders, showcasing all forms of Indigenous ingenuity. Indigenuity is broadcast live on Triple R every Sunday afternoon. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website or Twitter at IndigenuityAU.